Welcome to the Strategy and Leadership Podcast brought to you by SME Strategy. Our goal on the Strategy and Leadership Podcast is to bring you practical and actionable tools that you can implement with your teams right away. My name is Anthony Taylor and I'll be your host. Each episode, I'll interview a senior leader or a thought leader that will help you elevate your ability to lead people and drive your organization's strategy forward. Our partner is Cascade Strategy. They're our favorite tool for tracking and executing strategic plans, providing visibility for your entire team, and helping everybody have insight into where you're going and what you need to do to get there. If you're looking to improve your strategy execution, visit smestrategy.net slash cascade for a link for a free 90-day trial so you can see for yourself if you enjoy it and it helps your team move forward. So with that, I want to thank you again for joining us, and we'll get into today's guest. Welcome, folks. Thanks so much for joining us today. Welcome to the Strategy and Leadership Podcast. My name is Anthony Taylor. I'm very grateful to be joined by a, for a second time with Dr. Gleb Zapersky, who is the CEO of Disaster Avoidance Experts. Gleb, how are you today? I'm doing great, Anthony. Thank you again for inviting me for the second time. <laughs> oh, I'm so excited. I love watching you work. I love hearing you work. I love uh, all the stuff you talk about because it's funny. I find myself in the day to day when I think about if I'm going to make a bad decision, I'm like, what would Gleb say about this? Oh, if I'm going nice. with my gut. <laughs> so you can, um, you can get, you, you can get uh, braced, but WGD. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think that we'll have to, but so if everybody doesn't know what I'm talking about, maybe you can tell people a little bit about you, a little bit about your books and what keeps you busy these days. And we'll get into our conversation for today. Happy to. My expertise is in decision-making, like you said. Specifically, I've spent over 20 years consulting, coaching, and training folks on how to make good decisions. And the research shows that we make bad decisions when we follow our gut intuitions, which is what, like you said, people are typically advised to do. Go to your gut, trust your heart, follow your intuitions, especially in the biggest strategic decisions that companies face. And a lot of research showing that leaders typically make the biggest decisions when they use their gut the most. They ignore data, they ignore the kind of fallacious tendencies that we tend to fall into called cognitive biases, and they go with their gut, they follow their intuitions, and that's a big problem. There's a number of set of strategies that I talk about that you use to make good decisions and to manage risks. And specifically, my expertise is in cognitive biases, which you might have heard of the term, it's about how our mind goes wrong. So I'm an expert in behavioral science and cognitive neuroscience, looking at how our mind causes us to make bad decisions. And so that's what I do. I spend my time writing about this topic, consulting with companies, coaching folks, training folks. My most popular book is called Never Go With Your Gut, How Pioneering Leaders Make the Best Decisions and Avoid Business Disasters. So that's published by Career Press, and it's available in audiobook and physical book and ebook. Amazon, Barnes & Noble, wherever you get your books. And I have other books as well. But that's the most popular one. That's the one you'll want to check out. And that's the one that Anthony and I talked about in my previous appearance on this podcast. 
Yeah, absolutely. And we'll make sure that we get all the links to that. You can look Gleb up online. And uh, today we're really excited because Gleb just put out a white paper called Returning to the Office, Benchmarking to Best Practices for Competitive Advantage. And I found it super fascinating, especially since, you know, we, we talk about decision making. And I think that over the past year, because of COVID, we've had so many decisions to make that were, I'm going to call it like pressed upon us. There was a lot of reactionary decisions. And now in spring 2021, as we start to see the world coming to a new normal, there's going to be a whole slew of other decisions, mainly, you know, how are we going to structure work? How are we going to sort of grow our businesses? How are we going to move forward in our organizations? And Gleb has outlined some research done by Microsoft, by HBR, uh, by Slack, among others, to talk about their future and how they're making decisions, but also, and what I really like about his perspective is how cognitive biases tie into that and then combining all of that for a competitive advantage. So Gleb, anything that you want to add there in terms of a summary or or overview of the white paper before I get into some questions for you? Well, happy to get into the questions, but you're absolutely right on the white paper. And what the research shows is that the future our future should really be hybrid. The hybrid workforce with remote only, with some remote only options. But that's what the research shows. Unfortunately, many leaders don't want that. In fact, I just had this morning a strategy person tell me that they just got word that their company is asking everyone to be back in the office for four days a week. Four days a week. And he is really pissed about it because he can do all his work from home and a lot of other folks can do all their work from home. And he knows that a number of people will leave. In fact, his boss asked him if he was going to leave because of it. He said, I'm not going to leave, but I'm really disengaged and I'm really upset and a lot of other people will leave. So that, and there's a lot of research backing it up and we, we can talk about that. But a lot of leaders want to go back to January 2020. That's a big problem. We feel, leaders feel like, hey, the pandemic is over, let's go back to normal. <laughs> That's what they feel. And they feel good about that. They feel their gut intuition is telling them to do that. That's a bad mistake, and we'll talk about why. But that's a big problem. That's what I want to foreground as the biggest problem I've seen. And I've advised all companies in how to strategically get back to the office and plan for an effective post-COVID future. The white paper is based on 61 interviews with executives, mid-level executives and senior executives at these companies. Talks about this research, what the surveys show that Anthony mentioned. It talks about the cognitive biases, the mental blind spots that cause leaders to make bad decisions. And then it talks about best practices for how to implement the most effective strategies from the new normal with hybrid with some remote options. That's what the white paper is about. It talks about the problems, it talks about the fallacious thinking, it gives the research, and then it gives you specific, clear, practical guidelines with next steps for what you should do if you want to see the competitive advantage in this new normal, which is about your people. When I talk about competitive advantage, your people is the key source of competitive advantage. And if you're not prioritizing your people, their retention, their engagement, their morale, what are you doing? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I find it interesting because I guess there's there's two parts to it, right? There's the the sort of future gains part, the competitive advantage. How do we uh well become better? How do we operate in a competitive environment? And now, especially with the 
like what we'll call it advancement to working online where everybody's worked online. Now it's even more of a competitive landscape. So I do want to talk about the sort of future gains, but I also want to talk about the immediate nature of, Hey, how do we get back to work? How do we implement that hybrid model? And two interesting stats that I picked up from your summary. One is that working from home equated to a roughly 8% salary bump. Like that was the perk in terms of financial mm-hmm. value. And that potentially 40% of people would leave their jobs if they weren't implementing that hybrid model. So can you expand on, on sure. those key points and any other sort of key findings from your research? Yes. So I'll highlight those points and then one more. The the forty to fifty the forty percent is the bottom in surveys. So when you look at surveys, from all the surveys, I looked at eight very well done in-depth surveys, the kind of from Slack, Microsoft Teams, Harvard Business Review, Harvard Business School, and a number of other surveys with many, many respondents. And they show that at the lowest level, 40% of employees will leave if they're not given substantial remote options after the pandemic ends, you know, as they come back to the office. At the higher response bound, it's something like 58% of employees intend to leave their employer if they're not given that option. So that's a pretty big, big number. You know, at least two-fifths of your employees intend to leave. And this is part of what's called the great resignation. Now, you might have heard of this term. It's been popular in the news recently. Bloomberg has been publishing articles. Others have been publishing articles about this. But many folks were worried about leaving their jobs during the pandemic. Naturally so. Hard to find a new job effectively. Now, what the situation as it is right now, they are looking to find a new job. They are looking to find a new job if they are disengaged from their current company. So there's a huge wave of resignations that's coming up. And there's so many companies that are looking for workers to ramp up their post-pandemic normal, this recruitment surge. So you have the resignation, the great resignation combined with the recruitment surge. There's wonderful opportunities for people to find jobs that they like. And that is why you see a number of companies that intended to have their employees go back to the office pretty much full-time, being forced to roll back their policy. So, for example, Google initially, Google, I'm talking about Google, major tech company, initially intended to have their employees go back to the office full-time except for 14 days per year. So they said, well, 14 days per year you can work remotely. All the rest of the time you're back in the office. That was their intention. That's what they talked about, you know, February, March, April. Now, when only in the recent couple of weeks, they said, well, now we're changing our mind. Employees can come back to the office for two to three days a week, and we'll have 20% of our team working remotely full-time. You know why they did that? From my sources inside Google, from my contacts, it's because they had a bunch of people leave Google because of this, and very many people were intending to leave Google because of this. Because, you know, the vast majority of your work as a tech worker, you can do remotely. So that's an example of this retention problem. And the same is happening in many, many other companies. Mm. That's about retention. The 8% figure. What that comes from is research on how much of their salary employees would be willing to give up to work remotely, a substantial amount of their time. doesn't mean all the time. But for a substantial hybrid model, at least half their time, that's how much 
of their salary they'd be willing to give up. Imagine that, 8% of the salary. How many, you know, what's your profit margin for your, your company? How much better would it be if your profit margin was 8% higher? Now, and that is not simply, the, not 8%, this is the top line number. So your revenue, how much better would it be if your, if your costs were 8% lower on labor? That's how much people are willing to take less if they have substantial remote work options. So you definitely want to be thinking about this in salary negotiations and recruitment. So many companies are doing recruitment right now, and employees are willing to take jobs at an 8% lower salary on average if this allows them to work remote. So that's the second number that I want to give you. And the third number is productivity. Extensive, extensive research shows that employees are substantially more productive, from 10 to 14% more productive. So there was a research, for example, that employees worked 26 hours more per month during, if they worked remotely. Other sort of research showing that employees are, on average, 10 to 14% more productive when they work remotely. And this makes sense. You know, you don't have to go on the commute. You don't waste your time with that. You don't waste your time with various interruptions. You have more flexibility, and you can work during times that are more in flow with your energy. So when you look at the neuroscience of how our brain works, our brain has different energy levels throughout the day. And this is not food. This is clearly research-based information that we have. Some of us are more morning people. Some of us are more afternoon people. And there's different things that happen in our mind that cause us to have more energy at different parts in the day. So if we can align our work more with how we feel and how much our energy we have, then we can be much more productive and effective in our work. So those are the three things that I want you to know from the surveys on and other research. This is not only surveys, this is research, for example, Microsoft did research using LinkedIn, data points on job recruitment, all that sort of stuff. Microsoft Teams information on Slack also on their, how much time people were spending on Microsoft Teams and Slack. This is not simply survey research, this is research using extensive data. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I find it interesting as we talk about the implications. So for HR managers, if uh, if you're an HR manager on the call, you know who you are, looking at these things and saying, hey, how do we, air quotes, restructure how we do this? And I think that there's there's sort of a push-pull that you were pointing to, Gleb. There's like the individuals, how they work. And one of the things that came out of the research is like the team-led choice. Yeah. And so the team-led choice we can unpack with you know, you're going to listen to the team as you develop into these hybrid options, whether it's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven days or no days online, asking the team. And then there's sort of the what do you do with that information and like structuring the workforce. So how do you structure the workforce, including what you're using your physical space for? So I found it interesting that dynamic that hiring managers, CEOs, anybody having to do with structuring have to do that pull between what their employees want and then the push of how they want to structure their workforce and strategy. What are your thoughts on uh, how to practically guide that forward or or move that process forward? Yeah, I think this is a very important question that you bring up. Who gets to determine how much time people spend at home, remotely, all of that sort of stuff? Who gets to make those shots? When you look at the research on best practices and what works most effectively for companies, it's not when the CEO says, 
this is how much time each employee has to spend at home and has to spend in the workforce, in the office, and how much time. Neither is it when employees are just given the free for all saying, you do what you want, you do you, and we'll do what we'll do, you know, we'll make do. The best approach is when you have a broad set of guidelines from the top. The best practice is to have employees work something like at least one day a week in the office for most employees, no more than three days in the office for the vast majority of employees. One to two days is good, something like that. Three days if they need to, but you don't want to do much. You don't want to do more than that. And then give those broad guidelines to the teams, to individual teams of the team leaders, the lower level supervisors of your rank and file employees. So team leaders of each team, you know, the four to eight people teams that you have or whatever. So then each team with each supervisor gets to determine how it functions, how much time they spend in the office and how much time they spend at home. Some teams will decide to go fully remotely. And by fully remotely, I mean coming in once a quarter for a team building slash strategic retreat in the office and otherwise, you know, a couple of days, otherwise fully remotely, totally remotely. Some teams will decide to do that and that works for them. They don't need to, especially for teams that don't need to do much collaboration. The teams that are much more individually oriented and just have a supervisor, do their own production, they might decide to do remotely. And many teams and companies where I work, they have something like 10 to 30% of their workforce going fully remote, before which I advise. And that's uh, very much in line with best practices. Then the large majority of your workforce, 60 to 70%, will be coming in one to three days a week. And the team leader, together, of course, in consultation with the team, should determine that. The team leader should be encouraged to let team members who really want to do remote to let them do that. If there's some reason why they really can't, then that can be worked out. Maybe they can move to a different team or something like that. But the team leader should be the one who determines that. And then once you have team leaders determining that, you make an overall evaluation of the usage of your office space. Gather information from all the team leaders, how much time will they be coming in, if they're gonna be fully remotely, if they're gonna be one day, two days, three days, and then you will see, okay, this is how much time employees will spend on average. Maybe you'll find that on average, employees will spend two days in the office. And then you ask team leaders to stagger the amount of time that they spend. Each employee should come in, of course, on the days that their team comes in. So if you're coming in two days a week, then you should come in on the same days that your team comes in. And so you have people coming in, let's say, Mondays and Wednesdays, other people coming in on Tuesdays and Fridays, stagger them throughout the week, and then you'll get your usage of your office space. Now, once you know that, you can cut down your office space. You know, you probably have something like 10 to 30% of your office space is obligatory. You know, you can't cut it down unless you go fully remotely, which is also an option. But if you don't go fully remotely, you have 10 to 30% of your office space that's obligatory, various offices and whatnot that you can't give up. The rest of it determines, depends on how many people you have coming in. So if you have on average 20% of your office space obligatory, 80% of it is for, depends on occupancy. So if you have people coming in on average two days a week, then you have 60% less occupancy than you did before. So you can cut down that office space very nicely. So you can cut it down from your previous 100% usage to let's say 
45% of your previous office space. And you give up so many costs with the office space, not simply real estate, but various office-based services ranging from security to janitorial, office-based products, the commercial copiers, and so on. So that's the next step. You give those up and you rearrange, manage things. You also want to make sure to secure some room in a workflow or something like WeWork or something, one of these hybrid, one of these workspace companies so that you can have overflow space. That's the next step that you want to do. And that's the revising the office space. And there are three more things that we can talk about, but I just want to highlight those. Three things that you want to be thinking about. Changing your performance evaluation structure. That's very important. Then adapting your culture, including DEI concerns, diversity, equity, inclusion, and then training your workforce for this hybrid space. So those are three fundamental considerations that I talk about in the paper, white paper, and we can talk about that if you'd like to, Anthony. Yeah, I actually wanted to just expand on something because, you know, especially on the office space, and I know that we've got a lot of people in healthcare, and I know it's not maybe not specifically listed inside the white paper, but I don't know if you've seen any sort of, you know, any lessons learned from either clients or partners in the healthcare space, you know, because many of them, it's not an optional thing. Like some of them, they have to be on the front lines. They have to manage that. They have staff in there. How have you seen them put those changes in place? And I also want to get to the psychological nature of all of these changes. But before I do that, you know, what have you seen in, in specifically the healthcare industries, if anything? Yeah, I definitely, I've worked with a couple of healthcare companies and what they did is looked at who can come and do their work only from inside the, their operations, essential employees and whatnot. But they have plenty of employees who can do their work from home. I mean, IT people, they can do the large majority of their work from home, accounting, various back office stuff. They can do the large majority of their work from home. Also, Given the rise of telehealth, a number of people can do a lot of these appointments from home. Now, you know, I've had much more telehealth appointments, right? Why do I need to come in and see my doctor if I don't, if that's not something that is, is a good use of my time for my routine checkup, right? And just go in and do a blood exam if I need to. Also for various mental health appointments, a lot of that has been transitioning online and that frees up a lot of space that you don't have to rent that you don't have to use up, that you can save costs on. And that's kind of the future for you. And the people that will help you with retention and employee engagement and morale of those people who you can't have working from home. So that's going to be really important for you to orient toward the future. In healthcare, absolutely. It is absolutely viable. I've worked with a couple of companies, including in the hospital, that have been definitely cutting down their office space. And they have been one hospital decided to not finish a new wing, but they were previously thinking of completing because they're seeing, okay, well, they're not really going to use this office space. They won't really need that. And so that's definitely something that you're really going to be thinking about. Why use up space when you need to? What's going to be the future? You know, healthcare has, comparatively speaking, competitive pricing, pretty low profit margins when you're competing with other healthcare, whether you're a hospital, whether you're a doctor's office, whatever you're whatever you're doing, biotech, less so biotech, but healthcare settings, you're pretty competitive and you're competing with a number of people. Your profit margins are not that great. And so you've got to be thinking about, well, if I have people in the office, first of all, I'll have lower retention. I'll have higher costs for recruitment, all those problems, people who go to other healthcare operations, but allow remote work options. 
and I'll have higher costs for all this office space and office-based products and services that I don't need. Why would you do that to yourself? Why would you shoot yourself in the foot that way? So this is definitely very relevant to healthcare. And again, one of the things I talk about in the white paper is how you restructure your office space. Not simply give it up, but you have to restructure it for being much more collaborative. To giving up many individual office spaces because people will be coming in you know, one to two to three days a week, so hopefully one to two days a week. You won't have individual desks for all of them. It'll be much more hot desking with maybe shared desks among several people or team members and much more collaborative spaces because these are the kinds of things that people will be doing. One of the things I talk about in training people for the new hybrid model is they need to be trained what to do in the office, what to do when they come to work, and what to do at home. Because in the office, they'll be doing much, much more collaborative work. At home, they'll do, be doing their individual tasks. It's mostly better to do collaborative tasks together and mostly better to do individual tasks at home. So you've got to be thinking about that as well. How do you restructure your office space effectively? Yeah, absolutely. So I do want to get into the idea of, or the, not the concept, but the how to use this to create a sustainable competitive advantage, because I think that's an important part, just as because we've got a limited amount of time. But before we do that, I think there's an important consideration. We've talked and you've talked about all of these, you know, different things we can put in place, the why, the how, all of that stuff. But I think that there's an intrinsic resistance to change. Because the urgency now of having to change is gone. Now everything is a degree of optional. So what are some of the challenges? uh, And maybe you can answer this in like four minutes or less. What are some of the challenges that managers might face as going through these decisions, especially when it's like, well, it's been this way for such a long time. Or we had a plan that was four years old and now that was two years ago. We need to stick with the plan how do you manage that? You know, maybe it's not a sunk cost fallacy, but the psychological nature of implementing these new changes in this new way of hybrid work. Well, you mentioned the sunk cost fallacy. You want to be thinking about the kind of cognitive biases that are associated with bad decisions. One of the most fundamental ones I identify in the white paper is called the status quo bias. The status quo bias refers to the fact that when we are anchored to a certain way of doing things, when we are used to a certain way of doing things, and especially managers have a lot of experience and leadership authority, we tend to stick with it. We tend to prefer it. We tend to like it, even though it doesn't serve us well going forward. This is a big problem for effective collaboration, for effective engagement and recruitment of your people when you are attached or your leadership team is attached to a certain status quo. And they're not thinking about the future. You know, when you look at companies, great companies, the ones that really are great, they're the ones who are constantly looking for threats and constantly trying to seize opportunities. And they realize that they're in the middle of disruption all the time. Disruptive cycles are coming faster and faster. We had the 2008-2009 fiscal crisis. We had the rise of the smartphone. We have, the, obviously, the pandemic. What's going to be the next disruption? It's really around the corner. And if you're not the end, of course, the hybrid future is the much more remote virtual future is a disruptive force. So people are thinking they can go back to normal, but they can't. They're going to be left behind. The competitive advantage will be seized 
by those who are actually going forward and looking at the future. And here's another cognitive bias that is really important here called hyperbolic discounting. We tend to be very short-term oriented, and we tend to discount the importance of the long-term future. So when we are thinking of going back to the office, we're naturally, intuitively, not simply tied to the status quo, but we're looking toward the short term. It's comfortable. It's comforting. It feels good to us, to our gut reactions, you know, going with our gut. Again, this is very important, going with our gut. It feels very comforting to try to go back to the office of January 2020, the short-term orientation. But that's not the office of the future. That's not where the future is. If you think of where the office in the future is, it's very much a hybrid slash remote model. That is the office of the future. That is where you're having good recruitment, good even more importantly, good retention, high engagement of your workforce, high productivity, morale, all of that sort of stuff, which is the essence of a competitive advantage. All of that, what I'm talking about, retention, recruitment, morale, engagement, productivity, your people, that is the essence of your competitive advantage. And if you're not thinking about that office of the future, if your leadership team is not thinking about the office of the future, you are giving up the competitive advantage to your competitors, and you don't want to do that. Yeah, and I think it's really interesting when we think about like I know some people mainly are inwardly focused versus looking at competitive advantage external. But again, going back to that initial point is that competition for talent is pervasive. You know, you could be in tech and lose somebody to healthcare. You could lose somebody at healthcare to restaurant work. You know, so competition comes in a lot of forms, both geographically now and in segments. And then because people have a higher I would argue the highest ever labor mobility that losing that labor and having those high costs of hiring are the big sort of drivers for competitive advantage. And then also it's the internal opportunity of improving margins. Why pay more for something when you could pay less? So if it's not competing against somebody else, it's competing against a better version of yourself. So uh, as we finish up, what would be, you know, two or three like takeaways that you want our CEOs and our senior leaders to implement right away for them to either assess their decisions to make it better or to consider as they build their future workforces? One of the biggest problems I've seen is not sufficient surveys of your workforce where leaders tend to avoid surveying their workforce because they don't want to get information that they don't want to hear. And that's called the false consensus effect, where leaders think, okay, I know what my workforce wants. I will just do what I think the workforce will want to do. So you're having a false, you're falsely believing that you know what other people want who are on your team. That is not the case. That is a bad, bad mental pattern. So you want to really thoroughly survey your workforce and have them use the questions that are in the white paper, which of course will be linked in the show notes, use the questions in the white paper from the surveys to get information from your workforce on what they care about, what they want to orient to, because as Anthony very rightly mentioned, the competition for talent is the most important competition we're having right now. The the great resignation compared with the recruitment surge is going to be a big, big blow for companies that aren't forward-looking, aren't looking for that competitive advantage, and aren't thinking about the office of the future. So I want you to survey your workers very well. And then I strongly recommend you you adopt a hybrid slash remote hybrid model with some remote options. Again, one to three days oriented toward one to two ideally days with workers who really want to and who can do their work effectively, 
going toward remote again, 10 to 30% of your workforce, something like that, fine to have remote, still maintain company culture, and then focus on cutting those costs, reshaping your office space, so that'll be great. Then you wanna be thinking about how do you train so one of the things that people don't think about, okay, I'll have a hybrid space. What does that mean? Hybrid workforce. You can't simply retain your previous structures and processes and ways of doing things and have an effective hybrid workforce. Your previous work method of performance evaluation, for example, won't work very well because your supervisors are used to evaluating people based on their physical presence in the office and their engagement with them. That's not great for the workforce of the future. The white paper has an extensive section on changing your performance evaluation system. That's going to be very important. Then you have to adapt your culture. Your culture can't be the previous culture that you had. You want to be thinking about, and the white paper again talks about this, how to rejiggle your culture, reshape your culture to fit the workforce of the future, including how to maintain your culture in that virtual hybrid techniques that, you know, Zoom happy hours are not going to cut it, trust me. And again, the third thing I want you to be thinking about to change is training your workforce. Your workforce is not used to the hybrid model. You haven't had that in the pandemic. You haven't had that previously either. So you want to be thinking about, okay, what will they do in the office? And you need to train your managers to train so your lower level supervisors to help their teams make good decisions about what they will be doing in the office, those collaborative work, what they will be doing at home, and how do they communicate and collaborate effectively in this virtual world, in this hybrid model. So those are things that you want to be thinking about. Yeah, absolutely. So I challenge all of our listeners to start thinking about that. Um, if you have, like, if you got a pen and paper to write down one or two things you're going to do before the end of the month in order to move those like key questions that Gleb considered or asked you to consider, we'll definitely make that white paper available in the show notes. So if it's on YouTube, it'll be in the description. If it's on the podcast, it'll be below. And then Jason will drop a note for our community. If you'd like to engage in greater conversations around these topics and how to build the workforce for the future, be sure to join our strategy and leadership community. Uh, Gleb, where can people find you and where can they connect and learn more about your work? Well, of course, the white paper will be sent around. Now, you can learn more about my work at my website called DisasterAvoidanceExperts.com. Well, first of all, of course, my book, Never Go With Your Gut, How Pioneering Leaders Make the Best Decisions and Avoid Business Disasters, is available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Audible for audiobooks, again, physical, digital, whatever. DisasterAvoidanceExperts.com is my website. So check that out for podcasts, videocasts, blogs, white papers of various sorts, manuals, online classes, coaching, consulting, training. And especially check out DisasterAvoidanceExperts.com forward slash subscribe for a free course with eight video-based modules on making the wisest decisions. The first module has an assessment on these cognitive biases, these dangerous judgment errors that cause us to make mistakes about going forward and to not make good strategic decisions. Again, check that out at disasteravoidanceexpert.com forward slash subscribe. Excellent. And you can probably go to that Gleb's online store to get the What Would Gleb Do bracelets. Uh, <laughs> <There you laughs> kidding, of course. But Gleb, honestly, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much you. for sharing today. It's been a blast. Ladies and gentlemen, folks and people, please thank our guest, Dr. Gleb Zapersky, who is the CEO of Disaster Avoidance Experts. Gleb, it's been a pleasure. Please do check out his white paper. Share it with your team. Honestly, it was fascinating. I read this stuff all the time. It was really well written, very smart. 
a lot of things to consider. It's easy to read, so take the time in. And if you know somebody who is wanting to adapt their workforce to the future, be sure to send them this podcast. And if you'd like to make sure you don't miss any others, be sure to like and subscribe. So once again, thank you, Gleb. It's been a pleasure chatting with you. Appreciate the time today. It's been a blast. Ladies and gentlemen, my name is Anthony Taylor. My guest today, Gleb Zapersky. This has been the Strategy and Leadership Podcast. Thanks very much for joining us and we'll see you next time. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode. Before you go, I wanted to make sure that you knew about our signature course that will help you better align your team and get them bought into your strategic plan. It's presented really simply that whether you're a seasoned veteran or brand new to strategic planning, it'll help you better understand it. It'll help your team think more strategically and it'll help you better prioritize and set goals. Ultimately, it's going to give you a plan that you can execute successfully. Because you have no idea how many plans that I see that look good, but are missing key components to make them successful. And we cover all of those missteps in the course. On top of all the video training, you'll get access to all of our workbooks and access to our knowledge base and community. The course is only $4.95 and you can get instant access to all of the videos. Plus, you can use the code podcast for $100 off. The course comes with a 100% money back guarantee. If you don't get value from the course, let us know and we'll give you all of your money back. So go to smestrategy.net slash course. Use the code podcast for $100 off. And I'm really looking forward to the opportunity to support you and your team in getting alignment and moving your strategic plan forward. Thanks again for listening and we'll catch you next time.